Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Today is President Nixon's 106th birthday, and we're in studio today with Scott Husing, a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and author of one of the most noted personal troop memoirs of the Second Iraq War. It's called Echo in Ramadi, the first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. You can follow Scott at Echo in Ramadi on Twitter or at echoinramadi.com. Scott, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here in the studio with you. Great to be back in the Nixon Library with you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, now, there have been many written accounts of the Iraq War, um, including troops' memoirs. Um, one that comes to mind is Nate Fix, One Bullet Away. Um, but why did you decide to write your account of, of your experience in Iraq? Well, it was important for me initially for a couple different reasons. One was to make sure that this battle, the Second Battle of Ramadi, didn't fall in the shadows of other significant battles of previous wars and this war in Iraq and Afghanistan, like Kandahar or Baghdad or Fallujah, because it was a really significant point in the Iraq war that, that by the way, is still going on to this day. We've, we've been fighting this long war for over 14 years. But in 2006, when President George W. Bush and General Abizade ordered the surge strategy to flood the battle space with an additional 20,000 troops, that was designed to really hammer down on the insurgency in all those cities that it kept popping back up and popping back up. And we'd go to one city, we'd hammer them down a little bit, and then they'd pop back up. So it was important to capture the story historically uh, from that aspect. But for me personally, I really wanted to honor the spirit and sacrifices of the Marines that fought, the soldiers who fought alongside of us in that uh, epic battle, some of the bloodiest urban combat that we've seen in, in modern urban warfare, and also the families that supported us, those families that we left behind when we deployed and we were extended on the deployments and we fought, and our Gold Star families who are such a big part of everything we do. They're such a big part of a lot of the celebrations that we have here at the Nixon Library. They just are extraordinary people. So it was really important for me to share their story as well. So would you say this is more of a military history or a human interest? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and you said it's a personal memoir, but when I sat down to write it, I didn't say, I'm going to write my memoirs. I'm no President Nixon. <laughs> you know, I don't have this lengthy memoir. This is really a 10-month snapshot of the fight and some of, some of the things that happened before and some of the tragedy that happened after we came home. And it is historical nonfiction, but it does really read like a novel, I have to say. And that's what most people say. And when we launched the book uh, in February 2018, less than a year ago, and it you know instantly became a bestseller. And I used to tell people, yeah, it's about the fighting and the friction and the brotherhood. But since then, since I've received all of these amazing comments and reviews and emails and direct messages and instant messages across every platform, the stories that people tell me, the emotion that comes through and how it impacted them is really something that has transformed what I say the book is about. It's really not about the fighting. It's it's about the people. And it's about this power of human connection where you don't really see it in the time, the impact you're making as a leader, as someone who's fighting, but it takes five, 10, sometimes 15 years to really see that. And sometimes those have come through in emails or, or short blurbs from people, total strangers at times, 
or sometimes Marines who I fought alongside, I didn't even know their name or face, but they're mentioned in the book. I've got some great stories like that that I love sharing because that's the power of human connection, that they can relate and they can understand and really heal through this as well. So it's it's been uh, it's been really powerful. Uh, it's been a great chapter of my life, no pun intended, uh, to share this story and to really connect with all those people. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your entry into the Marine Corps? Um, why and when did you decide to join? Well, my entry into the Marine Corps is not unlike many young Marines or those who enlist or get commissioned to, to serve their country. I got roped in by a friend, uh, pure and simple. I did not have college prospects on the horizon. I barely squeaked out of high school with a stellar 1.24 GPA. So I think the Marines were a natural fit for me. And when I was introduced to them, they they were just the, the glamour and the posters all over the wall. And that like this, there's flags in the background and there was a lot of ceremony. And they, they just seemed like this huge group of risk takers, just meat eaters. And I love that because up until that point, I had led a very high-risk lifestyle fighting and running from the cops and drinking underage and racing a motorcycle. That was my first car was this race bike. So when I was introduced to them, it was like, these guys are perfect. Aside from all the excitement that I saw in these recruiters, I think like many young people who didn't have a lot of leadership or guidance in their adolescence, I think you seek that out. And, and the military offers that to a lot of young people is the sense of belonging, a sense of structure. So I think that was appealing to me. But going in, man, I didn't know anything about it. All I saw were these cool uniforms, these badass posters on the wall, and these guys that just know how to sell the product. And they got me. And it was the best decision I ever made in my entire life. In 2003, um, the United States launched the initial invasion into Iraq. Where were you at that point? I was just transitioning from um, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines in 29 Palms, California. I had orders in hand to go to an anti-terrorism unit, uh, which is a specially trained uh, anti-terrorism unit in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And so then the invasion happened, the, the march up occurred, they brought the statue down, all those iconic scenes crossing the bridge. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, President George W. Bush ordered victory on the aircraft carrier. But that wasn't the end of it, as we all know, as we're still fighting again today, is there was still more fighting to be done, a lot more kinetic fighting, a lot, a lot of dynamic engagement at the ground level, all the way up to the strategic level, and even back here in, in, in D.C. at the political level, decisions that needed to be made that really affected the war. So I was transitioning. I was back in Virginia um, after all of that had happened, and like many young officers, when they caught Saddam and they pulled him out of that spider hole, I'm thinking, oh, man, war's over. I'm not going to get back to war. And, and it had already been to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But every professional soldier wants their war. They want to keep fighting for their country. They want to do what they're trained for. And the best analogy I ever used for that, Jonathan, is imagine you're a pro football player and you're practicing every single day, every single day, and there's never a game on Sunday. That's how it is for guys like us in the military, especially infantry. We want to practice our trade and our craft, and we want to win. That's the goal of this game on Sunday, right? Win. 
in Iraq, when we did go back, um, it, it's also one of those adages, be careful what you ask for, you just might get it. And I, I did. And so did the young Marines who had wished for war. They went back time and time and time again, sometimes with very little dwell time in between those combat deployments, which I think you become insulated to, you become accustomed to, but it also wears on you. And I don't think we've recognized that. And we have, we've probably got a long way to go to make sure we're taking care of the most valuable commodity. And that's our people. And a lot of people say that our most valuable commodity is this, it's our people. But are you doing the right things to take care of them? So after this long war, um, you know, we really have to ask ourselves those questions. As a, obviously, the, there's a lot of politics behind uh, this war, um, you know, debate about what victory looks like um, as, the, as the war waged on between, um, between that, between af, around that, around the time of the presidential um, election of 2004. But what did, what did victory look like for a young, a young Marine? Well, we weren't fighting politics. We weren't fighting policies or strategies. We were fighting the enemy. Day in and day out, we were engaged in direct combat, uh, close combat in an urban environment five, six, seven times a day. And it wasn't a matter of if we were going to get in a firefight. It was when and how long. That was a fact. So we really didn't concern ourselves with that because my main priority as a commander at the time of over 250 Marines and sailors was, one, killing the enemy. Two, just making sure that I brought as many Marines and sailors home alive as possible. So the politics of it all, you don't have time to stop and, and absorb those because we follow orders as Marines. And that was our mission. And mission has priority. As we've evolved from 2004, and we'll talk specifically about Ramadi, the importance of that city going in is that Ramadi is the capital of Alambar province. So it's not only the capital by name, but it's also key terrain because it runs through such a vital artery going east to west from Baghdad all the way to the Syrian border. So it's it, geographically, it has some tactical value as well to, to fight there. And in 2004, when 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines was there during the first Battle of Ramadi, there was less insurgency there. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was less insurgency there, but an equal amount of fighting, and they lost a lot of Marines. But it was really a smaller number of U.S. forces in the city of Ramadi. And just like everything else, the pockets of resistance increased in other areas, so we removed the forces. And every time we did that, every time we gave ground back to the local leadership, the insurgents would inevitably come back, and they would pop back up again. So with the creation of the surge strategy by Bush and Petraeus and Abizade, they realized this. So we we did make some gains. Now, fast forward to 2006, uh, when we deployed there, it was my company along with Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. We worked exclusively for the U.S. Army, 1st Brigade Combat Team, for several different task forces that were in the city. So they kind of bounced us around like scab labor, so to speak. And when they needed a big club to come in and crush the insurgents down, they sent the Marine companies in because we were just bigger and stronger, not disparaging the army. It's just, they had suffered so many losses. Their troop strength was about 80 to a hundred soldiers in a company where we looked like rock stars, man. We had 250 Marines and sailors and we had all these weapons and 
all this firepower so they could really wheel this around the battlefield. And in a very short time, we made some significant gains in that city just by our, our physical presence and the aggressiveness that we attacked the problems with. So in contrast between 2004 and 2006, there's often discussion. First Battle of Ramadi, Second Battle of Ramadi. I talked to a lot of my peers, a lot of the other commanders and Marines and soldiers that fought in there. And I really think that it's become a point where I think it was a two or three year battle where there's these highs and lows in fighting, but we never really owned the city because we kept giving pieces of it back. And this is a city of 300,000 people plus. So you could imagine that. Uh, I don't think many Americans can imagine that on a scale in America, any city of 300,000 people fighting in that and then winning it. How do you, what is winning? Yeah. It's, it's such a great question because no one ever said kill this many bad guys and you won. Take this ground, take this building, and you've won. That's been a problem throughout this entire war is we've never had someone say, this is our clear metric for success. This is what winning is. And we've had conversations here with Professor Greg Datis, H.R. McMaster, right here in this very library about that exact question, what is winning? And until we define that, until we say our presence in the Middle East is going to affect our national security in this way. We're going to continue to stay here because this will mean victory for us. And there's no gray area when you talk about victory or winning. You either win or you lose. And and that's not just a professional soldier or Marine's opinion. That's the definition. So we really need to figure that out. And I think until we do, we're going to continue to repeat a lot of the same mistakes that we have in past wars. You had talked a little about the strategic importance of Ramadi. Um, in terms of success, in terms of strategic success, what did that what did that look like for for um, for Marines there? Well, we don't talk about strategic successes um, when when we use those words. You know, strategic. We're talking at the highest level. Like, what is? How does that affect a region? And then at the operational level within that region. And then for us. In 2006 and 2007, we're at the tactical level, at the ground level. So you go from macro to micro, where you have certain things you need to be concerned with. Um, now I'm in a position where, you know, I've written and digested some of this and contributed to scholarly discussions, and now I'm back at the macro level where I can have some more opinions on this. But again, I think from a strategic level, to answer your question, I think we are we are failing. I think we really need to take a hard look at how we integrate not only our kinetic firepower at the tactical level, but at the operational and strategic levels. How do we integrate the culture? How do we go from imposing our will militarily to really empowering the government to take ownership and want to have a democracy. And I'm not talking about American democracy. I'm talking about democracy, right? There's only one flavor. There's not multiple definitions like French democracy, American, Iraqi democracy. No, it's democracy. And if this is what we want, this is our end state to help regional stability, we have to come up with a plan to do that. But killing insurgents and dropping bombs is not necessarily the only way to achieve that end. You talk a little bit about the cultural aspect of it. What sort of, um, what was the demographic of Ramadi um, in terms of the um, sectarian um, issues that were going on well, in Iraq at the time? 
we we had a, a a really difficult time first identifying who the enemy is, and they came from multiple backgrounds. Some were home-born insurgent fighters. Some were, um, you know, brought in from Syria. Some were brought in from other regions that were paid guns, really guns for hire, to help fight on, you know, with the insurgency. And their only goal was to kill Americans and intimidate the peaceful uh, people of Iraq that didn't want to take a side. They just wanted peace and stability. And these are normal, peace-loving people. I mean, they wanted to see their kids go to college, drive a car for the first time, go to the soccer game on Saturday. And this is the demographic that you fight in in an urban environment. We're literally fighting the enemy, which wore no uniform, faceless, ununiformed enemy that was hell-bent on killing us day in and day out amongst the people, these kind, peace-loving people who at times would give us hot chai, they'd feed us bread, they'd bring us into their homes. Sometimes they'd give us information, sometimes they wouldn't because they were so intimidated by the thousands of insurgents that occupied that city. It really made it difficult for us to leverage the information we even got on a daily patrol. And we're running like eight, nine, ten patrols a day constantly through the streets and then we're sleeping in the homes of these people and it was uh, it, it was very dynamic now think about it this is coming from a guy who's 35 years old he's got multiple combat deployments a lot of life experience college degree now imagine that type of pressure that type of friction on an 18 19 year old kid I mean literally I was leading the majority of my company of 250 Marines they were on like the high school football team a year earlier and now this is what they're in charge of. I mean, not only the lives of innocent people as they fought, making sure their bullets went into bad guys only, but how do you fix their home? How do you pay this? How do you move the car? How do you uh, become you know, everything when you have just this limited amount of training? And I think it really comes from the type of people we recruit into our military. They're just people that get stuff done. And they're amazing. And every time I would task my young Marines with a, a mission or or a job, I was never unimpressed with the results. I was constantly impressed at the level of performance and how well they did it. They're just just amazing people, these young men and women who we pull from such a small segment of our population that give up so much, they sacrifice, and then they fight, and then they take care of each other better than anything I'd ever seen in my entire life. Why was Ramadi such a t tough battle for uh, the U U.S. Marines of Echo Company, and the um, and the also the Army personnel over there. Well, we had a lot of different angles to fight from, and it's a in, in any city, anybody that lives in a city, you can imagine it's a three dimensional fight. Uh, the insurgents themselves, we never underestimated them. They were extremely well trained, and they had one thing on their side: time. They had time on their side. They could wait us out. They could stay there. They could come back. They would find lines of communication where they could come in from north to south, and they would wait us out. And as good as our technology was, as good as all of the fast attack aircraft and the helicopters and the tanks and the technology that could detect a roadside bomb, all of that was great. But if the insurgents, who were smart, wanted to defeat any of that technology, all they had to do was go to ground level. And that just meant employing some of the most rudimentary tactics of 
observation, the types of explosive devices they'd use. They'd they'd made them so we couldn't detect them. They'd put them in animal carcasses. They'd put them in. They'd bury them under the road. They were extremely clever. So just when we found a way to thwart a roadside bomb that was remotely detonated, they'd make a pressure plate where a vehicle would roll over it and massive explosion and literally rip holes in in tanks from the amount of explosives. So fighting that type of enemy um, and one that uses the local population as a shield, it's really a challenge. Um, And that's not just for a 35-year-old commander. Even at every level, we've seen um, that challenge. But I think the answer to the problem is not understanding how to fight and kill the enemy. Again, you have to understand the culture that you're fighting in. And I really do think since I left that fight, uh, as we've continued to fight, we have gotten better militarily, organizationally at understanding culture and teaching our young warriors, uh, these young men and women, how to understand the culture and how to fight and adapt and win, because I think that's going to be a key component. Could you take us through some of the, um, the biggest voices, um, the most significant voices um, of your men in your, in your story? Well, sometimes uh, the Marines will say, hey, sir, I read the book and I wasn't in it. And I said, well, I couldn't write about 250 people. No one would want to read a book about that. But there are so many people uh, written about these, these brave young men and women in our families that I think that their voices are emblematic of what every soldier, not only in my company, or a Marine that served in Ramadi experienced. Uh, I think they represent that. And there's so many great stories. And I did over 75 or 100 interviews for the book. And when I finally shut up and just listened, I called some of these. And one of them is Sergeant Jonathan Espinoza, who I write about in chapters three and four. And he's punctuated throughout the book. But when I finally shut up and, and asked him these questions, the stories he told me, I sat there and typed and I took notes and I thought to myself, this, this stuff only happens in the movies. Like people are going to, if I write this, people are going to think this, this only happens in the movies. And then there's times where you think this never happens in the movies because it was so unvarnished. It was so authentic. And this is coming from a guy who was one of my senior leaders. He was a squad leader. The Marines feared him. They loved him at the same time. And he wasn't real chatty Cathy, but the the stories, the stories that he shared with me that day were amazing. I mean, this is a kid. Again, he was in Ramadi in 04, um, and his nickname was Espo, Espinoza. And then just 18 months later, redeploys, gets promoted, goes back, fights and leads his men, gets shot in the chest by a sniper round, and is medevaced off the battlefield. And the whole story that unfolds as he is not only transferred on a helicopter and almost dies in in flight, comes to and the nurses at this cushy Air Force hospital put this Superman pillowcase as he wakes up out of the the anesthesia and he looks at the pillow and the nurse walks in. He says, hey, what's up with this pillowcase? And the nurse looks down and smiles at Sergeant Espinosa and said, well, you're the first gunshot wounded the chest survivor we've ever had here. So we figured you're a Superman. You could stop bullets. And he just kind of smiles and rolls his head back. And uh, after the recuperates, he's given explicit orders. He's going home. 
Everybody thinks he's going home. His family's notified. They think they're going to get their, their Marine back. Espo's got different plans. And he decides to check himself out of the hospital against doctor's orders. And this is where one of the things, you, you think this only happens in the movies. He shanghais helicopter for helicopter for helicopter and transits all the way back to Echo Company in the heart of Ramadi. Firefights going on all the time. Lands. How he sweet-talked all these guys to get a ride back. And then he joins his unit. He walks in and he's like, hey, I'm back. And everyone thought they saw a ghost. Because we oh. thought once he got medevaced off the battlefield when he was shot, you know, he was gone. Not dead, but he was gone. Like he was going back to the States. But it, those were the types of stories that are included in the book from the people I interviewed. Uh, and just amazing stories of courage and sacrifice and bravery of these young men that just did these amazing things every time they were put into these crazy uncertain environments where there was just most certain danger every single time and they just fought for each other on on this human side of the story um could you tell us a little bit how uh the battle affected uh specifically the families um of these uh, of these marines there's uh so many components to families the dynamics where these where these marines come from um, you know, wives, kids, moms and dads. And I think that a lot of people don't realize when there's one soldier that goes and deploys or one Marine, they leave four, five people behind. And they, they're essentially loaning their soldier Marine, their loved one, their dad to the country to go do this. And how they deal with that, I think, is really remarkable because just like the the men and women who serve, they support us in everything we do. And I think probably the best example of that was, you know, when we lost one of our squad leaders, Corporal Dustin Libby, and I had to make a really heartbreaking phone call to her and, you know, tell her that we we lost Dustin and how much he meant to everybody, how hard he fought that night um, and everything we did to try and save him. And when Jenny Libby, his mom came back on the phone and, and told us about how much Dustin loved the Marine Corps and how much he loved his fellow brothers and loved, you know, doing what he did. And she told us she loved us. And that was, it, it, it makes me, you know, I get a little teary eyed just telling the story every time because it's amazing. I use that word extraordinary about our gold star families earlier in the in the show, but they really are extraordinary because it was hard for me to even comprehend that night through all the pain and having to make that phone call that here's a mother that just literally just lost her son and she was still pouring her love out and like any mother would to any son. And it was those are the type of people that um we're just so blessed to be surrounded by. Even to this day, I think there's such a huge part of everything we do to not only stay connected um, for those that experienced all those things of war and some of the worst you know, facets of humanity, but they help us as well, um, I think, stay connected and, and they love it too. So, you know, we, we always stay in touch and we call them and the Marines call them and they share stories and it's just, a, it's remarkable. What do you feel is the legacy 
um, of Ramadi, both from a military standpoint and a personal standpoint. Um, specifically, how will it impact, or how do you think it will impact how the country thinks about uh, future battles and overall war? I hope that we take every single lesson from every single city. And again, the things we learned in Ramadi uh, that I share in, in the book, I think, again, happened in multiple cities. So it's very important not to repeat these same mistakes in history. And I think, again, I don't get really political on certain issues, but I think, again, you, you gain some perspective as you get older and uh, maybe are elevated to look at things through a different lens to understand that we're poor students of our history if we're not looking at the lessons we learned in World War II when we set up bases in Europe or in the Pacific Rim, not as occupiers, not as the ugly Americans to gain ground and and crush real estate. We did it to establish a regional presence for stability in those areas. We did it in Europe, we did it in the Pacific Rim in Japan, and it took us 50 years, right, to figure out that, hey, it took seed, it took root, these countries came of age. But now in this fast food world we live in, and I, I'm on social media, I'm a huge fan, we want everything fast. You know, we want fast fast food, we want fast internet service, we want fast democracy. But we're still fighting a war. To, so to see the legacy of what we did the blood we shed, the treasure we've we've expended in that region. There's none of us that sit around that look in our crystal ball and, and weep and say, oh, woe is me, all of this was lost for nothing. It's not. We fought for each other. We fought for uh, what we were ordered to do. And the end result, even for the guys that fought in 04, 06, 07 in Ramadi, when ISIS took control of the city in 2015 in May, none of us were shocked because we didn't leave a footprint there. We didn't leave that guy with the big stick to say, stay out of my yard because we're here to stay. And that's one of the things in that culture, again, is respected. Power is respected and the guy with the biggest stick wins. And I, I hope that as this portion of American history closes, as we, as we do draw down or we build bases and we establish that presence. I, I hope it's a, a, a legacy that all of the, the men and women who fought and died in that city and, and many other cities across Iraq and in Afghanistan, um, it wasn't for naught. And we, there's, we did get something out of it, and somebody explains what that is. Our guest today in studio was Scott Husing. Our topic was U.S. Marines' account of the Second Iraq War, and specific the Battle of Ramadi. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, great to be in with you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This is Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.